Hey, Alpaca Pals, welcome back to Alpaca My Bags, where we chat about travel through a critical lens. You might remember back in October, the first episode of this current season, we chatted with a disability awareness consultant named Andrew Gerza. He shared with us his experiences traveling the world as a wheelchair user. I learned what ableism is. I learned about the privileges that able-bodied people have. I learned about the challenges, the frustrations, and the outright injustices. And this isn't just while traveling. This is at home as well. In that discussion, which I recommend you go listen to if you haven't already, Andrew made a really important point. The reality is that most of us will experience disability or chronic illness at some point in our lives, especially as we grow older. So instead of being terrified of it, we should embrace this fact. We should talk about disability, we should listen to what others share about their experiences of disability, and we should work towards building a world that is accessible for everyone. Today, we're going to continue discussing disability with Sassy Wyatt. Sassy is a disability and lifestyle blogger who you'll find on her site and on YouTube. She's working to challenge stereotypes through education and humor with the goal of empowering others to be more disability confident. She's been blind for just over six years, and she lives in the UK with her husband and her adorable guide dog, Ida. Welcome, Sassy. Thanks so much for having me. So I mentioned this to Andrew, too, when we um, recorded with him. I feel anxious sometimes about using the right language around disability, and I know that all people will have their own preferences. So I wanted to start by asking what language you use and what you're comfortable with and how you would describe your own disability. So I definitely call myself a disabled person um in the uk that that's the term that most of us use um we don't use handicapped or special needs as such or differently abled and so i see myself as a disabled person because it's part of my identity and it's kind of my brand now like i'm known as like the blind girl that travels and i may not have a big audience but within the travel space everyone knows me as that so i really like latch on to the fact that i'm disabled and i use that hopefully for good yeah you absolutely do browsing your site like it was really beneficial to me just to learn like about your experience but it's also filled with like very great travel advice so I'd say like it's a wonderful site not just for disabled travelers but for people like myself as well. I know on your site you talk about how you're all about smashing stereotypes so what stereotypes about blindness do you want to smash right off the bat? Okay, so there's there's three. My biggest one is that guide dogs don't know where they're going. Um, it's actually the it's the human that knows where they're going. We have to give them all the directions, left, right, forward. Um, you know, please don't cross the road. There is a car coming, um, and all those things. So it's they're not like a sat nav that you just like unplug them with and be like hey off you go <laughs> when you get to the the point where your partnership is super strong and you know the dog and yourself knows all the routes then yes they are more likely to know where they're going so when I step off the bus with Ida then she knows that we're on our way home um she will inevitably try and take me to the park on the way home <laughs> but um <laughs> I you know I tell her no not today straight on 
and those sorts of things. The second stereotype I really want to smash is that disabled people and especially blind people in general, um, we do care what we look like. We do wear makeup and wear fashionable clothes and we care about our appearance. And, you know, it's the same with everyone in life. Like, there may be someone that really loves, like, sweats and and tees, and that's what they in, they're into. Whereas I'm a girl, I love dresses, I love makeup, I, I love handbags and things like that. So I find it really bizarre that people think that just because you can't see exactly what you look like, that you don't care about your appearance. And I think the third one probably has to be that... Uh, we contribute to society just as, as much as everyone else, but unfortunately we're not given the opportunity to. So in the world there's 83% unemployment for blind people alone. And it's not because we're not academic, it's not because we can't do the jobs, it's because people are scared either how to approach disability or in the UK, for example, they feel, how are, how are you going to get around successfully and also how are you going to execute this job? And a lot of the time, we only need small adaptions in the form of technology or maybe learning the building layout a couple of times before we enter. And that's what the government over in the UK, it's called Access to Work, can help with. And like myself and so many other um, disabled activists are really trying to push onto businesses and brands that actually you just got to give us that chance and we will excel if not harder than anyone else because we come from a place of having to fight to prove our worth. I noticed in some of your posts on your blog that you mentioned that not every person who is registered as blind or who refers to themselves as blind has 0% sight. So it seems like there's a spectrum of blindness itself, but also, there's like a spectrum of how blind people choose to self-identify. Could you tell us a bit about the spectrum? Yeah, so it's certainly a spectrum. And I think with regards to the UK, you've got the classifications of partially sighted, which means that you have um, a, a decent amount of vision. You can you can read print and you can see objects, colours, outlines, those sorts of things. And then when you're registered blind, starting from the vision that I had at one point, I could still read print, but then it deteriorated even further to the point where I could no longer read print and I couldn't see um, shapes and colours and outlines. And in the UK, we have a system. So an ophthalmologist in the UK would measure your sight and what a sighted person could see at 60 metres, I would have to be three metres away to see the exact same object and be able to read it. And that's how the registered blindness comes into it because even though I may have been able to see, I can't see clearly. Now I'm classed completely as totally blind and all I have is light perception. So if you were to close your eyes and look toward your nearest light source, you can see that through your eyelids there's light pouring through, but you just can't see the rest of the room around you, even though you know it exists and it's there. There are people who, including myself from when I was um, first diagnosed with my impairment that you class yourself however you want to be classified in order to explain your situation to able-bodied people around you um, when you kind of are in the blind community generally if you say I'm partially sighted or I'm blind they just take that at face value and we identify and self-identify in, in those means more to help people around us understand maybe what we can and can't see. Yeah, you have me thinking my actually my grandfather had macular degeneration and 
growing up, he always had this. And so his sight decreased like as I got older until eventually he, he really couldn't see anything. And I just thought it was so fascinating, like as an adult to think back on that because he never introduced himself as blind to anyone. It was like never brought up really. And I always thought that was so fascinating because he like really adapted to living without sight to a point that he didn't even ever bring it up with anyone. And I wonder if a lot of people do that. Yeah, uh, we do. Um, I think um, you're probably going to talk about this at some point, but um, it's called internalized ableism, where you don't want the world to perceive you as being differently abled or disabled. So you get along with your normal life without using adaptations that may be of use to you, like a white cane or a magnifying glass or um, a liquid level indicator, which is a thing that you put in a cup and you pour liquid into it and then it starts to vibrate and beep to let you know you're getting near the top without you overflowing it. And all these are just small adaptations to help you live your life as successfully as you, as you can as a visually impaired or blind person. But I was definitely in that camp that when I start, first started to lose my vision, I was so determined to not look blind that I didn't use a white cane until probably a month before I lost my sight completely because I was so determined to not let anyone else perceive me as weak or vulnerable that I chose to not tell the world through an aid or through explanation that I couldn't see. It was only really my friends and family that, that knew I couldn't see very well. And it wasn't until after I lost my sight completely and I took on board all of these mobility aids and adaptations, I kind of felt freer because I was no longer struggling to try and be someone I wasn't. And I just, I've kind of brought myself into feeling independent because I use these tools in order to support me rather than push them aside because I, I was scared of people's perceptions of me. Would you say that like this is something that people who maybe like go part of their life without disability and then transition into life with disability, like would they, do you think, such people experience internalized ableism more or would you say like it's anyone is is likely to experience this phenomenon i think anyone's really likely to experience it but definitely those who have transitioned i can't remember the exact figures but the the we as a disabled community are the largest minority in the world as in you could become disabled at any point and it could be through illness or accident or so many other factors and so especially if someone like me who who was born quote-unquote overbodied and healthy i didn't know although i knew there was people in my community that had disabilities i didn't know the impact the severity of it and yet being online as an activist and talking about disability there's so many people from all different walks of life who've got different disabilities not just blindness that feel this internal ableism because you know maybe they've started to just accept that the distances they could walk they no longer can and now they need the use of a wheelchair but when they stand up out of their wheelchair to maybe grab something off a supermarket shelf and everyone stares at them they feel like conflicted because in their mind, they think, hang on, why are people looking at me like this and judging me? It's not a miracle that I'm standing out in my wheelchair, but so many people perceive it to be so cutthroat that it's down the middle, black and white, you're either completely able-bodied or you're completely disabled and can't do anything for yourself. And I think we're still, you know, even in 2020, still there and believe that we we need to prove to the world that we are capable 
and that we justify the needs of using a mobility aid. I also used to use a wheelchair and I had that same thing from the age of eight to about 16 that when people would watch me get out of my wheelchair that it was like some miracle had occurred and they were just confused. Yeah and so I think like what you're pointing to is how important it is to acknowledge that there is a spectrum not just with blindness but with all disability. Yeah certainly and it's everyone's own lived experience and I think this is why we really need to support each other in the disabled community especially that if you're new to disability that it's okay to feel all these feelings and it's okay to feel confused and conflicted about who you were who you used to be and who who you now are and i'm sure that this extends a little bit to like understanding how mental health intersects with disability because like as someone who struggles with mental health myself, I imagine that within the disabled community, it's something that people face. And often, I guess like you could say mental health is sometimes an unseen disability. Given how hard it is for someone someone able-bodied like myself to have mental health acknowledged, I'm sure within the community, it's an added layer to the complexity of what you're facing. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I too suffer with mental health issues and it all stems from the fact that a joint of internalised ableism and then over the years just feeling that the world is not against me as such, but that we're in 2020, for example, and that the world still doesn't accommodate disabled patrons and that we are seen as second class citizens. So to your point about it being an unseen disability, that's absolutely true. And 75% of the world's disabilities are invisible. And my disability is only visible to you because I have a guide dog or I use a white cane. But if I'm just sitting on the bus on my phone, and you know, my dog's tucked away at my feet, you'll never know that I'm visually impaired or blind and it's the same with mental health you honestly don't know what a person is going through and because it's so unseen this is why it's still a taboo today because people can't conceptualize what what it means to have a mental illness of any sort they just literally say the the words you know it's okay you'll get over it or you know just smile through it or just find something to be happy about and that really undermines the person's suffering and what they're going through. So when we talked with Andrew he emphasized that he felt it's really important to focus on the feeling of disability. He said that this is something that people aren't often asked like I think his words were people will always ask me how did you end up in your wheelchair but they don't actually ask me like what does it feel like to live this way and so I want to start by genuinely asking how it feels to be blind and how you experience the world. Andrew makes a fantastic point and I think this is something that the disabled community kind of talk about especially online a lot. For me being blind and the way I feel I only feel different when society treats me differently, when I'm classed as a second class citizen because a website isn't accessible or there isn't a braille menu in a restaurant. And that's truly the only time I feel totally different and that my blindness affects me because when I'm at home, everything for me is set out the way exactly I need. And we don't walk around using our guide dogs or our canes as aids around our home because everything, we, you learn a layout and then you, you move around 
in the way that it works for you and yes of course there's still I have accidents i.e I may knock over a glass or spill something on the floor and take a lot longer to find it and then clean it up but when you're in your own little bubble of being at home you almost forget you're disabled because people in your home don't treat you any differently it's when you step out into the wider world and I jump in a taxi with my guide dog and just like Andrew said they say what what happened to you how did you go blind where's your carer and I have to then explain my story I, I say I have to I don't a disabled person does not owe any other person the story you can choose to share it or not but because I'm an educator at heart I actually delve into it and then I explain you know that generally disabled people are extremely intelligent and we work and we contribute to society and actually we live a normal life as possible we just have adaptations to help us do that. And so we've already touched on it like quite a lot about um, like the concept of ableism. And I know that we discussed in our previous episode as simply discrimination that's in favor of able-bodied people. And I imagine there's like nuance to this concept. So could you share with us maybe your own definition of ableism and how it impacts you personally? I would describe ableism as the misunderstanding and the prejudice against disabled people in context of everything to do with education, work and lifestyle. And it impacts me, as I said a minute ago, about when I'm on the internet, for example, and I'm, so I do journalism and I'm researching a piece for my, you know, a piece that I'm about to write. And then I go into a website and that website is not accessible to me. I then can't find facts and figures to back up the piece I'm about to write. So then I have to use someone cited to read it out to me or I have to find a different website that's accessible. And it's those barriers to access of everyday living that you actually realise, OK, hang on a second, um, this this is where ableism is, is true um, because you're not seen as needing to use the internet so then most companies don't make their websites their apps or whatnot accessible to you and that's where I am very good at campaigning behind the scenes as well as on the internet about this and I'm very fortunate that there are people like myself out there that are campaigning behind the scenes and so much gets done that nobody talks about but we've still got a long way to go. Yeah, so I know here in Canada, ADA compliance is what they call this sort of like making websites accessible. And from my knowledge, it has a lot to do with like, if there's an image, including a description, like a detailed description that describes what's in the image. Is ADA compliance also, I don't know what you would call it, like a concept that they, or like a legislation in, in the UK? Yeah, our legislation is called the Equality Act of 2010 and it supports anyone. So anyone from sex, disability, gender, so many other facets. And to hone into your point of disability, we have the same concepts and the same legislation, but the, the issue is, is there's loopholes. They haven't made it stringent enough. So it says in our legislation about making reasonable adjustments. That could literally mean anything. To a blind person 
a reasonable adjustment might mean um, making things screen reader accessible and having alt text on your images, what you were just describing. But to someone that maybe doesn't use a screen reader but uses enlargement, maybe they need the, the screen to change colours and have it black on white or yellow on blue and things like that to, to make it stand out. And those kind of reasonable adjustments, you could go on forever and ever and ever because they're not enforceable because what may be a reasonable adjustment to you may not be a reasonable adjustment to someone else. And instead of kind of making it more stringent, they just use it as a loophole to, to kind of maybe sort of do some support and then not others. So in our buildings, for example, they don't have to um, change anything. They don't have to add in ramps. They don't have to add in accessible bathrooms. But buildings that were created after a certain point do. And so all the people that, you know, the business owners and even the education systems, you know, there are disabled people that go to specialist schools just because um, mainstream schools don't have an accessible bathroom for them and they're a wheelchair user that needs to transfer. And that's the ridiculousness of it is that you just would put in an accessible bathroom, then your child could participate in a mainstream school instead of driving 20 miles, you know, one way just to reach their school. And in the scope of things, like putting in an accessible bathroom is not, it's not that much to ask of an institution. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, and that's that's actually like after speaking with Andrew here in Toronto, Toronto, like a lot of the buildings are very old and a lot of the restaurants, I just started noticing like all of the bathrooms are in the basement in the center of the city. And it just occurred to me like how frustrating that must be to like constantly have to call ahead to a restaurant in Toronto and ask because the assumption, I think it's pretty safe to assume they won't have an accessible bathroom here. Yeah, it's, it's a lot to do with the same in the UK, the same buildings, the, the same issues. The, most of our bathrooms would be upstairs rather than downstairs in a basement. They just they just don't consider disabled persons' needs. Yes, there are so many different disabilities in the world, but an accessible bathroom, a Braille menu, having a hearing loop in your restaurant should be like three of the most key critical basics that you should have because those are the most those are the most prevalent disabilities hearing impairment visual impairment and a wheelchair a wheelchair user doesn't matter what their disability is but if they're a wheelchair user they need an accessible bathroom where the doors aren't heavy and they can transfer so I want to shift gears a little bit to talking about travel because I know that you are a fanatic of travel just like me <laughs> and we want to hear what it's like to travel blind and what your experiences have been like. And also we thought like in case any of our listeners are blind, what advice you can give them if they want to travel. Okay, so I'll start with the end point first because I think it's a lot to do with confidence. Being blind can really make you feel isolated and limited in what you can do when it comes to travel. But the reality is it's all about having the confidence in yourself to ask people for help, to look on the internet beforehand and, and do some research and, and just go for it. I'm not saying 
uh, cool. <laughs> I, I'm not saying go into it blind, as the proverbial saying is, <laughs> but at the same time, I, I, I think unless you experience it, unless you try it, you're not going to know how you feel. Going back to your podcasts where you're saying that you felt empowered as a solo traveler for doing it on your own, it's exactly how I felt. I may not have been able to see my surroundings, but the amount of people that offered me assistance or because I have the assertiveness to ask for support, that I then felt that it didn't matter that I couldn't see because I was experiencing the world through my sense of uh, taste and touch and smell. And I experienced the world in so many different ways that maybe I don't see the exact beauty of, of a monument, of a building, of a landscape. But if I've got my, my husband with me or a friend with me who's sighted and is willing to explain that to me, I build up a very, very structured picture in my mind and I feel like I'm seeing it with eyes that work. It's just about taking the time, I guess, and explaining what your needs are. And nine times out of ten, people are so accommodating that you may ask for this accommodation and without even realising it, they've given you ten times more information that build up an even more beautiful picture in your mind than you could have ever imagined. Yeah. I love, like, you've really pinpointed something I've thought about myself a lot, which is the sort of, what is the value of travel? And I think a lot of people associate it with like seeing things like seeing like the London Tower or whatever site you go to see in a city. But I think there's so much more to it. Like obviously there's food and there's sound and there's culture. And as you say, there's interactions with local people and all of that contributes to the beauty and the value of travel. And I can actually draw a parallel here because I travel with severe food allergies and I've had people say to me, oh, I can't believe you didn't eat this local food while you were in Thailand. And I can't. I can't eat it. And the way I explain it to people is travel for me is not about food. I, it never will be. It never has been. And that's probably not going to change. I've just adapted to travel for other aspects and other like sensory feelings and I think that's totally okay. And I've told other allergic travelers, you just have to accept the fact that travel for you isn't going to be about food. For a lot of people it is, but that's not the case for us. And I think once you come to accept that, you can really start to appreciate and love other elements of it. And I imagine like this is similar to what you've experienced, like you've found other things to love about travel. Yeah, absolutely. Like my biggest thing is is exploring a city by foot and I'll get to I'll do a walking tour specifically. So I'm mapping out what it looks like in my head, but then I'll get to feel the texture of the buildings and then I'll get to smell the air and then I get to taste the local delicacy. And it just creates this magnificent picture in my mind that even though I don't have sight and a lot of people may go to these places in the world to see the monuments, I don't have to have sight to have vision. And I think that's what people just forget that when you have something that stops you from doing one or two things, then you just adapt and you see the world in a different way. And it actually, for me, opens my eyes up to the beauty of humanity. Like, I get to see the wonder that is humanity and kindness that I think even most travellers don't get to see because the locals are helping me and the locals are offering me support in a way that an able-bodied person might not need. 
so I get to hear about you know their life and what they what they do for a living and how how they explore their own country and they give me tips and tricks of where to go to get the best deals on you know monument or or food or sightseeing and I'm like yes this is great like <laughs> I'm learning from the locals that maybe other travelers may not have absolutely and I think like a lot of people don't value like discussions with local people when they travel. And I've said like, this is one of the reasons I loved traveling alone, because you're kind of forced to talk to people, especially if you need like some sort of social interaction and you're traveling alone. Your only, your only resolution is to like put yourself out there and talk to people. And those are some of the most like valued memories that I've personally had from traveling are the people that I meet and the things that they tell me and what I learned from them. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. I I think that we're so we're so lucky that we have all this on our on our doorstep when when you're visiting somewhere that you've never been before that the locals will probably tell you more than a guidebook ever will than you know more than another traveler ever will because they see the world in a different way and they teach you things that opens your thoughts and perceptions up and you're like wow I, I never thought of it like that and it's it's really fascinating like I love people I'm an extrovert and I think that's probably why I love travel so much is that I may not come away from somewhere like Venice and be like oh yeah the buildings are so pretty or like this was such a like a beautiful site I'll come away with having chatted to a local about how long he's had his restaurant open and how it's been in the family for three generations and I get to learn about people's lives and I love that. And so you mentioned that um, you had to build up a confidence to travel. Can you tell us about your first experiences traveling blind and and how you overcame um, fears or challenges that you faced and basically how you built up this confidence? It takes a lot of practice. And so disabled people, you know, face kind of prejudices in you can't do this, you can't do that. And I think blindness is one of those really, really scary things that, that people are terrified of happening to them and so when I explain to people that it's it's about just going out there and kind of trying it and winging it and see see what happens then people are like oh okay I get it I had to learn how to use a mobility aid in the respect of a cane and that tells me my surroundings so it will give me feedback from the ground, from the environment around me. It will stop me from smacking my face into objects. It will tell me that I'm in a queue and there's someone, you know, two feet ahead of me. So it means that I'm, you know, I'm not tripping someone up or whatnot. And it's, I think you've got to start small. If you don't have the confidence, say, in your own backyard, then it's it's unlikely that you're going to jump on a train or a plane and go somewhere new. But I was very fortunate that my family have always kind of let me explore and get lost. They will come and rescue me, but they'll also let me get lost instead of wrapping me up in cotton wool and worrying for my my mental health and my safety because they knew that I would never deliberately put myself in any real danger. And once I'd built up that that confidence, it made me itchy to want to see the rest of the world. And there's so much I haven't seen, but... Building the confidence is it's almost like when you go to the gym and you practice 
you know, reps, and then you get stronger and stronger and stronger and you build that muscle. It's the same with confidence. And my first ever solo trip was um, to Rotterdam and I went to um, a Traverse conference in 2018. And I'd been a lot around the UK by myself, but weirdly enough, I didn't see that as completely solo or independent because I felt like, well, if I get lost, then the locals speak my language and, you know, I can... Yeah, I'll just I'll just wing it it'll be fine whereas jumping on a plane and going to Rotterdam although they probably speak better English than I do <laughs> um it was the fact that I was like no I I can't turn around and just be like oh I've got to go home now um I've got to, I've got a face I've got a face it head on and I had the best time and the funniest thing was is that my mum probably disapproves of this although she hasn't outright told me <laughs> that she I I was like yeah I'm having the best time and I got super drunk and she was like what <laughs> and I'm like yeah because that's what me and all my friends were doing you have to get she's like you're in a country you don't know you don't even know where like your hotel is apart from through google maps and you're there getting drunk and I'm like yeah it's great though isn't it and like she just <laughs> she couldn't quite put, get her head around the fact that I would be so kind of brash and almost put myself in potential harm's way because I was letting my defences down. But actually that's what made me even more confident because I was around people that were travellers that, you know, had so many different pieces of technology that they could have called an Uber for me or, you know, flagged down a taxi or anything like that or even walk me home. I had people walk me home nights when I was drunk <laughs> and they were drunk too. But it was the fact that I just... I didn't let my blindness stop me from enjoying my life the way I would at home. And I would never ever say, you know, put yourself in danger or be so silly that you don't know how to get home or you don't know how to be safe. But I know how much I can handle alcohol-wise and I I just let myself be free. And if anything, it probably made me more entertaining to everyone around me. So people are coming up and be like, you're so great. And I'm like, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> My mom, my, my mom would have the same response. Absolutely. <laughs> so what are some like bits of advice you could give to um, travelers who are blind and are maybe just starting out um, traveling for the first time? Like what kind of preparation goes into prepare, like preparing for a trip? So I always tell my uh, blind and visually impaired friends to, to kind of have a checklist of things so you know 100% that you've got autonomy in yourself in case anything goes wrong. So book special assistance at the airport, even if you know the airport well or you feel like a confident person. If you get that assistance, then it takes some of the mental energy of traveling through a very busy airport and then getting there and then getting on your flight and feeling exhausted than just kind of traveling through with someone assisting you and getting you onto that flight you just feel so differently and when I explained that to my friends who'd never done it before and they tried it they were like wow I see what you mean because you you're so focused on everything around you uh, that by the time you sit on the airplane you're so tired I just said give it's okay to ask for help even if you don't ask for help usually it's okay because that's what it's there for the special assistance is there to assist you so they can meet you you know at the 
at the beginning at the terminal and then walk you through and then get you on the plane and someone else will meet you at the other end. And the two other biggest things I always say is have everything in an electronic format, whether it's your, your paper tickets, make sure that's in an electronic format send it across to someone you trust that's going to be at home and just have your entire itinerary and things that you may need for your trip in an electronic format and paper format so you've got it on your person so if anyone asks you you can whip it out even if you can't see to read it like I've done that so many times where it takes me longer to flick through my phone to to get the electronic format up that I say hey it's one of these pieces of paper and I just kind of shove it at them and be like you read it <laughs> and and then 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 they're like oh okay great and it just gives you that autonomy to feel like you're in control even though you're experiencing something new it's okay to ask for help it's okay to kind of use assistance and rely on others when in your day-to-day -day life you may not have and also just kind of make sure that you get everything that you need just like what Andrew said in his episode with you guys that it was if they say oh sorry you can't you can't sit here because your guide dog's going to take up too much space say well sorry my guide dog's entitled to this space and you know ask for the overhead ask for to sit near you know a bathroom if that's what you require because for someone like myself being on an airplane it's kind of easy there's usually a, a bathroom at the beginning and a bathroom at the end and so wherever I sit I will find a bathroom but if you have a have a giant guide dog that needs the space then unfortunately you are probably going to have to take up two two spaces or at least one extra on the floor for your guide dog and it's okay to ask for these accommodations don't shrivel into the background and be shy to ask for what you need just because you're scared or uncomfortable about the perceptions of people around you because nine times out of ten those are the same people that will probably give you a tip or give you a hand helping you with something else that's the way I've done it. I, I ask for my accommodations and then someone else will be like, hey, maybe if you moved up here, you'd actually have more leg room. And I'm four foot nine. I don't need leg room, but my dog loves it. <laughs> Do you get to bring Ida with you whenever you travel or are there restrictions on that? Anywhere in the EU, um, she is absolutely allowed to travel with me. She has her own pet passport and she has to have um, vaccinations. But like, I've never taken her to um, Asia or the Middle East or anything like that. And it's because they they don't like dogs. So I could never take her to Dubai, for example. And not just because of the heat and the way that it would, wouldn't be safe for her. Just like, you know, a dog that's born and bred in the UK. That sort of heat is not natural. But I, I couldn't because they, they hate dogs. I would be allowed to travel with her in the plane at my feet on the way there but then she would literally be put in the hold in like a shipping box and shipped back. Anything could happen to her on the way home but that's because it's their laws. So there's no way that I'd take her to specific countries because I don't know if she would get, she'd get treated badly and so my priority is her. If ever I want to travel in hot countries and it's peak season or I want to travel somewhere like the Middle East, I would have to just leave her at home. And she has all the rights that I have generally, but obviously you have to respect that other, other parts of the world don't share the same laws and the same human and, and animal rights. So you've just got to take that on the chin and make that decision. Yeah. What's been one of your favourite trips to date? 
Oh, I... Oh, there's, there's quite a few, actually. I think there's almost moments in every trip that I'm like, that's, like, the best trip of my life. And then I'm like... And then I go somewhere else. I'm like, that's the best trip of my life. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you more about my most recent one just because it's so fresh. And we went to Italy last year and we were a part of um, a tour group that were like, okay, you can, um, who wants to go and walk down or climb down this, this gorge? And we were like, what? And everyone on the bus was like, oh, wait, I can't, I can't. Like, I've got, I've got other places I need to be. I've got another tour booked after this or whatnot and I was the only one that raised my hand I was like yeah I want to I want to like you know just jump down this gorge I want to like traverse this cliff and go down to the waterfall and Grant's like no no we're not going and I was like tough we are going <laughs> and so <laughs> I hop off the bus and and then we have to climb over all the do not enter signs and then <laughs> go down and traverse this like quite steep gorge and then I get to feel the waterfall and hear the power of it and that was really, really spectacular because it turned out we were literally the only people to do it that entire trip. And there was like 400 people at this conference that all at different times throughout that week had had the same excursion booked. But for whatever reason, we were the only ones that did it. And so I had one of the best mountaineer guides in the entirety of Europe and um, his buddy taking us down there and it was it was such an immersive experience because not only was it just Grant Ida and I and the two gentlemen but like they really took the time to describe my surroundings describe the scenery and then I you know I could smell the the, the fresh water I could smell the grass I could smell everything around me and I don't think we would have got that if that was like there was 20 of us doing that I wouldn't have got that same experience. And it's the fact that just because I can't see doesn't mean I don't want to be adventurous. And I have to kind of push my husband into being adventurous with me. <laughs> Most of the times he'd he'd happily sit on the sidelines and watch. But then the issue is, is Ida gets sad whenever she sees me walk away and she's not by my side guiding me. So she tends to pull him after me. So he has to come no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> Ida's on your side. <laughs> Yeah, she's a true adventurer. <laughs> um, so in speaking um, both to you and Andrew, it's really clear that we live in an ableist world that needs to be more accommodating to people with disability. I've learned so much from you both now about little things that I otherwise would not have thought of. So I wanted to ask if you have any actionable advice for ways that maybe like just regular people like myself, but also society can work towards better accessibility for blind people? I think it's kind of, if you notice it, especially if like you're traveling, and I'm very aware that, as we said earlier, the, there's different parts of the world, they they combat uh, disability differently, they combat human rights, uh, animal rights, everything differently. But if you go somewhere and you say for example go to a really beautiful church and you realize that actually they've got a lot of steps you could say to them the tour guide did you know that there's probably a government scheme that you could get a ramp installed and that meant that wheelchair users could um, access the building and appreciate the church too um, if you had an audio description headset and you went around the church with points of interest that the 
blind person could put in. They could appreciate the beauty of the visual artistry as well, even though they can't see it. Did you know that if you put braille on, say, for example, the pieces of artwork or one of my prime examples is when we went to Trentino, in the middle of the city centre, they had a really beautiful, completely brass monument and it was so tactile and it had braille and it was the entirety of the city as it was when it was first built but all completely accessible to someone like me and that that blew me away because I I live in a first world country and I don't even get that in, in the UK so to go to somewhere like Europe and literally see the entire city with my hands I can't read Italian braille but it was the fact that there was braille on there was so spectacular because it just made the world come alive, made the city come alive to me. And that was what was really transformative. And I think, although it might take time and sometimes a little bit of money, most of the time there are government schemes that are able to support the people within their community to make things more accessible. And it's classed as universal design. So if you were to make some make a ramp into you know, a church that's like, you know, a thousand years old, then it means that maybe elderly people or people with buggies and pushchairs could access it too. And they wouldn't have to be left outside either. So it's not just about the disabled person, it's about how it how it works for everyone. And I've been to so many like tours with monuments where, you know, able bodied people, sighted people are using the audio description too. But yet they were they were essentially built for disabled people to be like accessed and yet the entire entire community of a tour group will will use them because they want the same appreciation they want to understand the the history behind the piece not just see it yeah so it can really enrich experiences for everyone absolutely and i think it's just about bringing that to the forefront and and saying to people this did you know that that this is possible and most of the time they didn't the amount of times that I've done that in even in just the UK and I've said to you know a place did you know if you had braille on like a braille menu you know you could you could contact what's in the in the UK's RNIB Royal National Institute for Blind People they could actually create you a braille menu so it's not coming out of your pocket but then that's a braille menu that's accessible to blind patrons and yeah as I said it's transformative because it's universal design. And so you're saying like someone literally anyone can notice these things and just say something about it like we can all be more vocal about advocating for these small changes yeah absolutely and I think that's that's exactly what what I started off doing because I wasn't as blind as I am now and I would pick up things that my totally blind friends when we went to restaurants and there weren't braille menus and I'd say the same thing and we'd go back maybe a month or two later and they'd They'd have a braille menu and it was just it's just wow okay I didn't know that this existed thank you so much for letting me know and then they've just made that accommodation and then you just feel like you're just part of society that's like the beauty of being allies to to anyone in in a like minority community because disabled people have been chatting on about this for years but we don't get listened to because we just don't but yet, like an able-bodied person or someone in politics or someone with money and power who says the same thing and, and everything switches on its head. Like, So I don't know how, how you girls have been feeling about this, but with the lockdown happening all around the world, 
disabled people have been saying for years we can work remotely um you know so for me personally i i have arthritis and that's actually why i'm blind and i have a lot of chronic pain so uh, me being self-employed works perfectly for me because there are days where i have 14 15 16 hour days and then there are days where i just need the bed rest but I still, I can email from my phone. I can take conference calls from my phone in bed. And that's great. And yet, you know, throughout society, it's, well, if you're not in work, then you're not, you're not doing your job. And it's just like, everyone can really work remotely. And it's really turned on its head to see how, how quickly and accommodating the entire world can be because we're in a pandemic and no one's allowed to leave their house and no one's allowed to go anywhere. But yeah, this is what disabled people have been shouting about for 50 years. <laughs> so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's been discussed here a lot. Well, thank you so much, Sassy, for joining us. It's been really enlightening to chat with you, and I hope that you enjoyed chatting with us. Oh, I had a brilliant time. Thank you. Sorry I uh, talk so much. (laughs) No, that's a good thing. That's what podcasts need. Do you want to share your website, your Instagram, anything that you want to share, you're welcome to. So my website is thinkingoutloud.com hyphen sassystyle.com it's a bit of a mouthful uh, because you know the famous song by Ed Sheeran thinking out loud he he very rudely took that from me so I had to create my own my own extension of the website <laughs> um, and then on, on most social platforms I'm just at sassy wire or sassy wire official so I'm also very open to people asking questions about disability and travel blindness those sorts of things because my goal is to educate and I hope sometimes I do it with fun and humor that people don't feel uncomfortable about it but I'm also very open to educating in the best way I can I may not always speak for my entire community because I'm just one person but if you are curious come to me and I will answer or at least point you in the direction of another activist another disabled person that could answer the questions better than I can and Alpaca Pals, all the links will be in the show notes as per usual. Alpaca My Bags is hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced by Katie Lohr here in Toronto. If you guys liked today's episode, let us know by leaving a review. To do that, just tap the review tab in the Apple Podcast app and then leave us five stars. I mean, assuming you think we deserve it. Uh, and also a review. Um, Doing this really helps us in the charts and it helps us reach more people with this podcast. So if you want to find us, just head to Instagram or Twitter and look up at alpacamybagspod and feel free to reach out and say hi because we love hearing from you alpaca pals. Until next time, I hope you get to alpaca your bags soon and remember, take that train instead of the plane. (laughs) 